Hey peeps, it's me, Christine, and I want to share with you a game-changing product that has improved my sleep and daily health. So let's dive in. You all know through my journey, I have struggled with sleep, being afraid of it, not getting quality sleep, and not being able to regulate my temperature throughout the night. I definitely learned the hard way, but sleep matters big time. It's when your muscles repair, your brain detoxes, and your body can work on cellular renewal. We just can't afford to miss out on an adequate amount of high-quality sleep, which is kind of hard when you have a rare disease. There's not much that I control in this real life, but one of the easiest and most effective ways to get better sleep every single night is through temperature regulation. Studies actually prove cooler temperatures lead to a deeper, more restful sleep, and that insomniacs actually lack this natural drop in core body temperature, which is what keeps them up at night. Personally, I run hot. This means that even if my room is super cold, I wake up in a pool of sweat, uncomfortable, changing my clothes several times throughout the night. It's frustrating for obvious reasons, and this is why I was so relieved to discover this transformative products from Chili. The Cube from Chili Sleep is a system that fits right over the top of your mattress and uses water to control the temperature of your bed, which helps lower your internal temperature and triggers deeper, relaxing sleep. Since water has 30 times more thermal conductivity than air, these systems are a lot more effective than just cranking up the AC. I mean, I keep my house at 65, so it has to be true. Ever since I started using the Cube system, I've noticed I fall asleep a lot faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. (laughs) Now, my wife is not a polar bear like me and likes to sleep a little bit warmer, so I love that we can each have our own temperatures on either side of the bed. Chili products can range between 55 and 115 degrees. Right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilisleep.com backslash findyourrare20, you get 20% off the Cube All Sleep Systems with Find Your Rare 20. Sleep is something we could all use more of, and we can all take small steps towards getting better sleep to improve our life in big ways. I hope you'll check out the Chili Sleep System and see why I love their product so much. Hey peeps, I'm your host Christine and I'm flying solo. Today, we are talking with Amanda Griffith-Atkins. Amanda is a therapist and a parent of a disabled child. Her life mission is to give parents space to talk about their hardships, and what it's like parenting a child with disabilities while also recognizing that they love their child so much. This episode is going to be filled with all the feels. So let's dive in. This is the Because We're Strong podcast, where we sit down every week to get your stories and insight on how to navigate this rare life. You can expect everything real and raw in the hopes that your story, along with ours, helps another person who is dealing with a similar rare struggle. So grab your favorite drink, a comfy blanket, and buckle in, because rare disease isn't for the faint of heart. Welcome, Amanda. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Christine. I'm so excited to be here. As a therapist myself, it's always nice to see other therapists who are in this space um, and also in you know, the world of like healing because it's not ones that I think cross, or at least I've come across like, that cross often and it's so needed. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I think, you know, as therapists, we have 
such a sort of sacred calling in some ways, but in other ways, we're just kind of there in the trenches with people like doing real life with them. And, you know, you never know from session to session what's going to come up. Um, and then also at the end of the day, obviously we're just humans like everybody else. We go back to our own lives and where we're partners, where we're parents and not always the best partners and parents at that. So it is an interesting job. To- yeah. <laughs> I would agree. And definitely something I want to get into though, too, is like you said, the week to week. And I've seen it myself and I've been so surprised where, you know, couples will come to me and they're either somebody is just being diagnosed or they find out their child has a genetic condition. And like, it's, it changes, like, you know, everything changes in that, in that session to session. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. Yeah, totally. And I think, my son's 12 now and um, he has Prader-Willi syndrome. And I feel like since going through that experience with him, it's just given me so much compassion for parents that have either gotten a new diagnosis or um, are entering into therapy the, for the first time to uh, manage this. And it it's just, there definitely is that like before the diagnosis and after the diagnosis where suddenly your life has taken this turn that you probably never expected it to take. And so some of my most favorite clients are parents that are raising kids with disabilities. I mean, that's a small portion of the clients that I work with. um, But those clients are just so special to me because I relate to them so much. So, you know, speaking of, you know, your son, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey, and how you found yourself in this real world? Yeah, totally. So um, my husband and I were 26, which looking back to me feels so young. And I had just finished finished graduate school at Northwestern to study marriage and family therapy. I had, this was like right after, right during the recession. And so it was really hard to find a job. I found a job in community mental health, um, like working so hard with such a um, struggling population, making like $0 an hour and (laughs) found out that I was pregnant unexpectedly. Um, and so we were so excited and just kind of like every new parents, we jumped in. I sort of felt like, Oh my gosh, like this is just the way life is. Life is really turning out so good for me. I just finished my master's degree. I have this great husband, and now we're finding out we're having a baby. Like, wow, life is really falling into place. So I felt sort of like, yeah, I, I had done the right thing. Like I had went to college and then went and got my master's and like, wow, just look at life, you know, exactly where I need it to be. And almost feeling the sense of like, I earned this, all this goodness in life. I made it. Yeah, I made it. Here we are. So as the pregnancy progresses, more and more little issues started to come up. I had too much amniotic fluid. Um, I was having contractions. Baby was measuring small, but nothing that was like overly alarming. And um, as the pregnancy went on, more and more complications. Finally, at like 36 weeks, they were like, you know what? We're going to go ahead and induce you because it just feels like some things are up. I didn't have an amnio. I didn't do any genetic testing. Because why would I, right? We were 26, young, healthy, yeah. Um, you know, whatever. And so um, gave birth to him. He ended, it ended in a C-section. He was instantly whisked off to the high-risk nursery. We were even at like a small – I live in Chicago, right in the city. But we I decided to go to like a smaller, like um, more like neighborhood hospital because I didn't want to, you know, didn't want to go to the – I mean, Northwest, one of the best hospitals is right here next to us. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't want the like assembly line of like, you know, 
um, you get your epidural, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, I'm going to try a natural. I want to do skin to skin. I want to breastfeed right away. Like I'm going to go to the small community hospital where I'm treated like a, you know, not just a number. Um, I mean, needless to say my subsequent pregnancies, I was at Northwestern, like, (laughs) you know, like go big or go home, like give me the hospital that has the most intervention. But so they took him to the high risk nursery and, um, there were lots of concerning things in hindsight. It's very, everything that he struggled with right away was pretty like textbook for Prader-Willi syndrome, but of course it's a genetic syndrome. So they had to do testing before, um, we were able to confirm that. So at, at three days, he ended up in um, the NICU at the the big children's hospital here. It was Children's Memorial at the time. And um, he was in the NICU for about a month. And then at seven weeks, we got the formal diagnosis of Prader-Willi syndrome, um, which just I'll share a little bit about it just because my guess is probably, it's pretty, it is rare. Remind me, Christine, what what is your child? What is the diagnosis? I actually am not um, a parent. I am actually someone who has a rare disease and a before and after. I was 27 oh when gosh. the onset of my disease. Um, but I love connecting with parents for so many reasons. One, because um, there's a commonality that you would never have thought like a parent going Absolutely. through this would have with me, um, as well as um, just now there's an increased risk that if I when I do have children, um, that that could be a possibility. And so um, I'm yep. still fighting for a diagnosis. I've got all like the standard, you know, Ehlers Daniels and um, POTS, uh, undifferentiated connective tissue disease, but they can't seem to find the gene um, that is, you know, causing this. They found a few genes, like I have, I'm BRCA positive. I have brittle cornea syndrome. Uh, but ultimately, and I'm finding this actually a lot with uh, those of us who get kind of like sicker later in life, that it's like a much more difficult journey. Yes. Um, particularly one because they don't want to do a full panel of genetic testing like they would with, you know, um, maybe an infant. Yeah. And so, um, but no, uh, so we differ in that way, but yep. that is how, um, that's how I found myself on this path. Oh, I love hearing your story and just, I think just as a mom to a child with health issues, with a disability, like it is just so encouraging to hear you advocating for yourself and, you know, being really trying, it is such a puzzle. And I've talked to a lot of adults that are looking for a diagnosis or cannot quite put the pieces together. And I hear more and more from people that there is this sense of relief once you finally find out, okay, what is causing all of this? Right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you're able to find it someday, but even just getting like, more diagnoses probably helps you in some way make sense of your symptoms. It just feels validating to be like, okay, I'm, this is real. Like, I know this is real, but it's so hard when we don't have language to put around it. Exactly. And I think that's like what I still struggle with today is that, and and why I've always clung to the word rare and why I started all this is because I didn't have that space. And a lot of times I still feel like even an imposter in anywhere because like, my labs are negative. I don't, you know, like there's no clear lines for me. And so I've come to this word rare because it's the only thing that has felt like something I could um, make an identity around, you know, make sense of this. So I completely agree with, you know, what you're saying and, um, and the process, but I do believe like your son and the way we're going, like the future is rare and it is, I have so much hope for it not being invisible. Um, 
and you know, it's advocates like you that are teaching their children that like, it's okay to be who you are and, you know, like showing them, you know, that there's like, there is no such thing as, you know, normal. And, you know, I think that's why it, why the puzzle has to all come together, right? Like for all of us working together for this one common goal, and that's to bring that invisible visible um, to, you know, bring this to the forefront. I love that. I love what you said. And also it's, it's okay to be rare. It's okay to be different. And it's also okay to have feelings about that, right? Like that's so much of what my passion is, is that like, it is okay for you to have feelings about your diagnoses and to feel at times angry to feel at times sad. Does that mean that you're not grateful for the life that you have? Absolutely not. And there's a time and place for gratitude and joy. And yes, you're also allowed to feel at times pissed off. Like this is not fair that, you know, because of pots, like someday if you want to have kids, that might be challenging for you. Right. And the pain that you feel like that is not fair. Right. And I think it's so true. Cause like even getting on this podcast, like knowing that in 10 minutes, I've got to be out the door to go to, um, another doctor's appointment. Right. Yeah. Like it always feels like it's for them to Lord knows, tell me what, if anything, and sit there and have to like, you know, be in tuned and you know, all this, when I, you know, you have a whole life that's happening that you have to also participate in. And so it's that tricky battle, but I love what you're saying about feelings. And that's why I do believe that also, right, the next generation that's getting social emotional learning in school and are getting these things are hopefully going to, you know, progress the, this like whole idea that like feelings are okay. And like, you don't have to be thankful for the cards you were given because somebody was given different cards. You know, this isn't a competition. This is just, you know, life. 100% all of that. Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about um, PWS, my son's syndrome. So of course, when he was diagnosed with it, I had never heard of it. And it's the type of syndrome, which I think a lot of disabilities are where if you Google it, it's terrifying. So I always like new parents to like ease into the Googling because um, technology and science have just changed the syndrome in so many ways to where what it was in the 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s. It's come so far since then um, because of medication and technology. So basically the part of Asher's brain that registers um, hunger, that registers thirst, the hypothalamus, um, is there's a problem with it. And so the there's a lot like PWS is a very complex syndrome, but the biggest kind of notable part of it is that he always feels hungry. And really like the older he gets, the more we're noticing this, that food is always on his mind. And so the example that I always give is if we were to order a large pizza and say, Asher, you can eat all of this. And then we were to give him another pizza he would probably eat both of them. Like the part of his body that says that he's full does not work properly. And so these kids are at risk for, I mean, first of all, just obesity and, and like, like, like severely severe weight issues that can really impact their health, but also I was gonna say, and the complications that come with that, and right? Com- like digestive issues. Absolutely. Um, and then, I mean, at, at its worst, they're at risk for stomach, stomach rupture. Um, I mean, people with PWS have died because of stomach rupture because they eat to that point. So it's really terrifying. Um, And I mean, I post about this a lot, but like we have to lock our fridge, we lock our pantry. um, We really have to be careful about food stuff. Amanda, can I ask you a question? And this is, I'm not a parent, so please feel feel free to say you don't want to answer it. But 
it seems like that would be really difficult as a parent, right? And he's expressing this, right? Like, I'm hungry, right? And so you want to, like, locking the fridge and locking these things, I know you're doing it for him, but the emotional toll that that must take on you and and your partner, like, I couldn't imagine. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because that has to be an awful feeling. Thanks for bringing that because it is. And I feel like it's, I also have two other sons that are non-disabled and neurotypical. And it's been hard because when your child says I'm hungry, when your child says I have a need, it's your natural parental instinct to want to meet that need. But from the very beginning with Asher, I've had to acknowledge that I cannot meet this need. Like the way that I meet this need is by often depriving him of the thing that he wants. Like how messed up is that? Right? Like how messed up is it that that is what that's what often looks like protecting him looks like, I'm sorry that you're hungry, but I, you've eaten your calories for the day and I'm not going to give you more food, you know, but it is this weird experience where you have sort of turn off your empathy switch. Like that's what I've recognized with him. Whereas one of my other kids came to me and said, I'm hungry. I would instantly go get them a snack because I trust their judgment. When they feel hunger, I trust that they're feeling it. Yes. You know what I mean? Their body is feeling it. Yes. It, so it's such a weird position as a parent to be in. I mean, we've had countless experiences with at the school where they're like, Asher's hungry after lunch. Can you send more food in his lunch? I'm like, no, I cannot send more food in his lunch. Like, you don't get it, you know? <laughs> so this is it. exactly what I, I – I exactly. And this was a segue I wanted to go into two things, right? So school and, like, sleepovers and stuff, like, one, that yes. must be terrifying. But then also, yes. have you encountered, like – you know, being a mandated reporter and working in an elementary school, right? Like if a kid came to me and constantly said that he was hungry and my mom locks the fridge, those are all like social work 101. Oh yeah. Not that they should be right. But like on a very food is a basic level thing. Right. And so hearing that consistently, and I don't think I would ever mean to right? like, and once I'm sure now it's gotten easier, but have you encountered like anything of that nature that has been like, difficult like or at least been scary that you yeah I mean thankfully at school like he has an IEP and I think most everyone really at this point is very aware of his syndrome and understand it at this point I think it's more embarrassing I will use the word embarrassing or concerning when we're like at a restaurant right and they bring him his food and it's a mound of French fries and a grilled cheese sandwich, right? And I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, like I know Asher has a certain amount of calories. We really try and keep his food the same, but like any other family, like, yes, we're going to go out to eat occasionally. And so if I, I, we need to be so strategic, either, either we have to like a classic move in our household is my husband will take him to the bathroom to like, quote unquote, wash his hands. And then I take like half of his fries and like put them in a napkin and throw them away. But like, you better hope he doesn't see it or else it's going to be the end of the world. And we're going to make a huge scene in a restaurant where other parents see me throwing away my kid's food. And I can't even imagine what it is that they think of me, but I'm sure that they're, and, and Asher's really thin also. So, you know, you, you would I'm sure parents think like, oh my gosh, did you see that mom? She threw away like half of her kid's food. What was she doing? So I can't even imagine what they think. And most of the time I don't care, but I mean, I would be lying if I say I never care. Like I'm sure it's just so out of the realm for most people to understand this syndrome that it's, it's, I feel like when we're out in public, 
I am sure people think, I don't know what people think. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's a good point about like what people think. And also, like I said, now that he's getting to be 12, like he might be able to comprehend a little bit more, but you know, also he's getting to the teenage years and teenagers are naturally rebellion, right? And they have an invincible complex. I don't need to tell you this, right? Developmentally, you, you know, all this. So now thinking about like, okay, like, is he going to defy like when he's out, you know, hanging with his friends, like that level of trust that you're going to have to build, right? Because his body is lying to him. Totally. I mean, he, Asher's pretty like cognitively impaired. He has a pretty low, I mean, if we want to talk about IQ, like he has a low IQ and he really, I mean, he, his, he, he doesn't live like your typical 12 year old's life. So in some mm-hmm. ways, but, but PWS is such a spectrum that there are kids with PWS that do lead more of like your typical life. Like they might be able to go hang out with friends. Um, maybe someday they'll be able to drive a car. I mean, it seems right now for Asher, like that stuff is not like, he won't be able to drive a car. I don't think. Yeah. I, I, he won't, he will never live independently. Like he really needs, he's able to get himself dressed. He's able to, um, he is able to talk. He's able to, you know, walk and interact with peers, but he's pretty limited in a lot of ways. And in some ways, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I, that that's as positive at all, but like he is very dependent on us, which helps us protect his food situation. Like, I think it would be a lot harder. Yes. And I know it's a lot harder for parents of kids with PWS that want to go to sleepovers that want to do that kind of thing, because you have to like, like, like I say, we lock up our fridge when we're staying with family or whatever, it's always hard. Cause it's like, do we bring our own fridge lock? Do we just hope that, you know, it's like the weirdest things that we like, Oh, Oh, did you pack the fridge lock? Like what, how bizarre is that? You know, to like, sorry, mom, I put a fridge on your, on your, or I put a lock on your fridge while we're visiting from out of town. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know. Or like when people spend the night, yeah, it's an extra layer, right? Oh my gosh. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you also so, have two other children you said that um don't have this syndrome and like that's a tough balance. Like right there alone I'm like sitting here Amanda and yeah. I'm like you know like they get the like it it's right there like just balancing that, right? And even just balancing like right the attention in terms of totally. you know how much how much do I give to my, you know, kids who just like they need attention as well, right? Like they, they deserve attention and rewards for like, you know, their sports or whatever they do while still, you know, sitting here and advocating for Asher. Like that's a, that's not an easy balance to find. How do you do it? Oh my gosh. I think that's, that is like one of the hardest things. And I feel like we are so knee deep in that struggle right now because my middle son, he's, um, nine, but he cognitively is, has of course surpassed Asher. And, is doing things that nine-year-olds do. He's having sleepovers. He's playing sports. He's, um, you know, into Marvel movies. And then Asher is like, really loves Elmo and like, you know, is hanging out with us all the time. And so I think that is really hard because I also worry that as I think a lot of parents of kids with disabilities do, my middle son feels, I think feels really responsible for Asher. And so it's just been crazy to me to observe how he has adapted to this lifestyle. Like he's watching Asher. Oh, mom, Asher's trying to steal food. Like, right. That is so to me as I'm a a marriage and family therapist. So a lot of my training is around family work. And so I really worry about like the responsibility that's put on him to be almost like 
parentified. Like he's almost like a third parent in some ways, which I'm, which I, in some ways I need desperately for him to be on board. But in other ways, I'm like, you're nine. Like you, you should not be worried about, you know? So it's this constant battle of like, I'm grateful that he's so mature and helpful. But on the other hand, I'm like, always like, you don't need this responsibility. Like you need to be a kid and you need to not be worried about Asher. Right. So we hard. call them glass children. Right. And, yeah. and you know, like the siblings of, you know, rare disease, the siblings of children with rare diseases. And, you know, it's funny. Cause like my sister had that response, like my sister were four years apart, but I'm, I was 27 when I got sick. Right. Yeah. So like, there's this whole other dynamic that like starts to happen. And, you know, I find it just, you know, incredible what children can do and pick up, but also the long-term effects of it. And we know, right. Cause we sit with people all the time. And that, I think that adds a layer of yeah, like fear. Yeah. Cause it's like, I know what's coming. So I've already said like, I will forever pay for Silas's therapy. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> He's 40 and he has bad insurance. Like I will pay out of pocket for his insurance because, or I mean for his um, therapy, because I just want him, I worry about him either feeling resentful over time or just taking on like this over responsible role. And I know a lot of parents of kids with disabilities worry about this because, um, because our kids, our kids become part of the system, right? So he's part of the system. He understands our family. Like he knows what needs to happen. Um, and then also on the flip side, I'm also aware that that will make him and his little brother, I hope like highly empathic, loving, nurturing, people that embrace people with differences because they see it every day. So that's important too. And like, I think that goes back to, you know, like there is two sides to this rare coin in the sense that like, there are some beautiful things that come from it. Right. And there are also some, you know, things that are less desires desirable. And, but I mean, I, I think for me, it has just changed and made me just see the world so much differently. And I think that is something I would never want, never wish upon anyone, but also never give up now that like, I see the world in this way. Um, And through the fact that like somebody who is like, like I said, when you're a social worker, you get trained for these red flags. Now, you know, if I heard this red flags, I would know to ask the question, like more questions about like why the food is locked up or why, you know what I mean? As opposed to just assuming, right? Like that, this is happening. Um, Amanda, what would you, if you had wanted piece of advice to give to like parents who are just coming into the world of like um, either rare disease or parenting with a child with a disability, what would be your one piece of advice? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think I would say in that moment, like that moment where you get the phone call, where you're meeting with the geneticist, I would just say, it's not going to feel this bad forever. You know, like that moment where everything crashes down and you're like, oh my gosh, like what, like my life is forever changed. Like that's always what I tell new parents is that you will find normal again. You know, even like Christine, you found some sense of normal, like you're still working, your life moves forward and you're able to think about your future. But like probably each time you got a new diagnosis, you were probably like, shit, like what? It just feels like the world stops for a minute, you know? And I think for parents of kids with disabilities, it's, it's that where it's like, 
oh my gosh, like this is not what I thought my life was going to look like. I did not envision, you know, having to take my kid to therapy three times a week or having to go create a special needs trust or for some parents get a wheelchair um, device on your car. You know what I mean? Like these are not things that we anticipated for ourselves, but humans are resilient and humans are, are capable of change. And I feel like that's what we do. That's what we do. And so I would just say, it's not going to feel this bad forever. You're going to be able to wrap your head around this and life will move forward. I think that's what advice, that's the advice I would give. That's what I needed to hear. I think I, really. I, I, I think I needed to hear that too. Right? Me uh, too. <laughs> and I think every time that I go to the doctor, I feel like I, I need to hear that, right? Every time yes. something slightly changes, because it's a whole process. Amanda, you are like a wealth of knowledge. Where can people find you to connect with you? I'm on Instagram. Um, my name is Amanda period Griffith period Atkins. So you can find me there. And then um, I also have a website Amanda Atkins, Chicago.com. That's my therapy website. Um, and I also say I, one of my favorite things to do is therapist matchmaker. And so, um, I can't always keep up with it, but usually if somebody shoots me an email and says, I'm in network with Cigna and I live in South Carolina, could you send me a therapist that's good with chronic illness or, um, disability parenting, I will like do my best to do my research and find you someone because I just feel like therapy is such an important part of survival for us, you know? So you're the Cupid of therapy. I I mean, it is really a passion of mine connecting. I mean, like, I love that. The Cupid of therapy. I love it. I love it. I I may actually, um, you know, put that as a resource in the show notes because I think that is so good and people need it. Amanda, thank you so much for being here today. I really, I'm going to have to have you on a second episode because I enjoyed it so much. Um, Please. You are always welcome in this yes. space. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. It's so important to so many of us. I appreciate it. So, As always, thank you to all of our listeners who tune in every week as we continue to bridge the gap between rare disease and the rest of the world. Until next time, live large and stay rare. Catch us next week for another episode. To continue the conversation about rare disease and all the unknowns that comes with it, join our Facebook group. Want even more rare? Become a VRP member on Patreon and learn more about our stories or how to share yours by visiting bwspod.com.